Hey everyone, you are listening to the Divergent Conversations podcast. We are two neurodivergent mental health professionals in a neurotypical world. I'm Patrick Cassell. And I'm Dr. Neff. And during these episodes, we do talk about sensitive subjects, mental health, and there are some conversations that can certainly feel a bit overwhelming. So we do just want to use that disclosure and disclaimer before jumping in. And thanks for listening. As autistic ADHD business owners, Patrick and I both understand the importance of promotion and doing it in a way that feels authentic and genuine. If you are a neurodivergent business owner and you would like to place your services or products in front of a neurodivergent audience, we are now opening up our podcast for sponsorships and we're providing a 10% discount code for neurodivergent business owners. So if you are an autistic or ADHD business owner, and you'd like to get in front of our audience, reach out to Divergent Conversations Podcast at gmail.com for more information. And now we are going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors. Workplace communication can be messy. Considering the lens of neurodiversity can be helpful for understanding this. Maybe you found yourself frustratedly typing per my last email in an office communication, perplexed about how a colleague or client doesn't seem to understand your very clearly written email. Consider this, visual information processing isn't everyone's strength. Perhaps a quick call can make a world of difference. Or how about including a video or voice message with your email? And this technology exists. Simple steps like these can make your work environment more accessible and bring out the best in everyone. Tula Consulting is on a mission to help organizations build more neuro-inclusive products and work environments. Tula does this by bringing curious minds to solve curious problems. Find out more by visiting tulaneurodiversity.org. That's T-U-L-A, neurodiversity.org. Thanks for hanging around, and now we're jumping back in. All right, so we are back with RSD part three, which will probably lead into an eventual RSD part four. But last week, we did not get to all of your questions. We kind of diverged and we want to get to more of them today, especially the ones that we think have a lot to talk about. So I think we want to start off with what can highly masked RSD look like? Love that question, first off. Um, so last month when I was like, deep in RSD mode, making the workbook, I created a grid, which this is my like pattern finding. So I I just want to tease out. It's not like in the clinical research, but I made a grid of overlaying RSD responses on top of kind of like the fight, flight, fawn, freeze and talks about different responses. So, and we talked about this a little bit in, in our first episode, but like the fawn and the freeze response, I would say are masked RSD responses. Um, and so this could show up as like perpetual people pleasing, right? The myth being, and, per- and perfectionism, those two. The myth being, if I never make a mistake or if I never make someone upset with me, then I never have to experience this really painful thing. Um, and so a lot of masked RSD looks like really high performing, high achieving, um, kind of busy bodies, ways of being in the world. And then I think when the RSD does inevitably get triggered, because none of us are perfect, perfect, and even if we're people pleasers, we're going to have miscommunications with people, um, I think the experience gets very internalized. So instead of 
perhaps an emotional or angry outburst, what you're going to see is things like perhaps substance use or um, a lot of negative self-talk and rumination and retreating in in some cases, self-harm and other really like that. And taking the pain internal, like also talked about as internalization, you're going to see a lot more of that. So the people around you might not actually even know you're having an RSD trigger. Yeah. And it, you know, those are the moments, right, where we could use the language for a lot of self-destructive behavior going on behind yeah. the scenes too. Yeah. Um, to be able to keep up appearances, to be able to apply that social lubricant, lubricant, like you've mentioned before, of this is how I fit into these spaces. This is how I show up. This is how I can people please. This is how I can socialize. And then that burnout just really takes over, right? Because there's going to be intensified depression. There's going to be intensified burnout. There's going to be t- intensified anxiety going on behind the scenes. And mm-hmm. kind of like starting each day from a negative energy reserve and trying to get it back at that point in time yeah. where you're like, I'm operating at like negative percentage and I'm going to put mm-hmm. myself into the situation again and again and again. Absolutely. And and then we've also got to consider shame dynamics, which, which also perpetuate all those things you just mentioned of um, people with internalized RSD would have a lot of shame dynamics going on, which um, perpetuates a lot of like negative coping. Um, and here's the thing about shame. It's so shame theory is really interesting, actually. Um, but one of the tricky things about shame is that sometimes there's this belief we fall into um, or trap. Like if I can self shame enough, I can protect from other shame, right? So self-shame, it's the shame we give ourselves. Other shame is the shame we experience from others. So I see people with very internalized RSD who are, you know, people-pleasing perfectionistic tend to have really harsh inner critics that are very shame-based and the, and have a really hard time um, diffusing and unhooking from these inner critics, partly because that inner critic feels really protective. Because if that inner critic is, I'm going to shame you so you don't experience shame from another person, it's playing a protective role. Now, we would argue it's not actually protecting or helping the person, right? But it it feels like it's incredibly protective. Most of my life, I've had a very, very harsh inner critic. And yeah, I couldn't unhook from it until the last few years because I was like, no, this is protecting me. Um, so self-shame protecting from other shame. Yeah. Um, shame is one of those emotional experiences that is probably one of the most painful things that happens, um, to a human being. I think that that shame spiral is so incredibly mm-hmm. painful, destructive, torturous, hellacious. I mean, the criticism that ramps up the internal dialogue, I tend to sh- go into more of like, um, a shutdown space when I'm feeling really shameful. I notice it comes up a lot when I feel like I can't do something um, that I feel like I should be able to easily do, like screw something in in a mm-hmm. way that makes looks even or not cause a hole in the wall or having to call a handy person after that because I've created said issue. That happens a lot. Then there's the social shame component mm-hmm. where that really happens with the RSD uh, triggers. For me, where it really does create this almost like existential dread component too, mm-hmm. where you yeah. are 
really questioning everything and anything and almost losing sight of your sense of self in those moments too. Oh, I think we absolutely lose sight of ourselves in shame spirals. Yeah, because it's in so that kind of the, I guess, clinical or lexiconic, that's the word, definition of shame is just in case people aren't aware. Um, so guilt is the experience of like I've done something bad and, and guilt is actually a good experience, right? It, it's it's helpful feedback um, for when we're not living consistent consistently with our values. Shame, on the other hand, is I am bad, right? It's like I am the bad object. I am bad. Um, and so that experience of I am bad. It's it's interesting as we're talking about shame. I'm like, how are we three episodes into RSD and we haven't talked about shame yet? Or even how did I write a workbook on RSD and not talk about shame? Because I think really what we're talking about is when the shame is activated relationally. Because I think that is what happens with the RSD trigger is it's I let this person down or I like hard feedback. I am bad, right? And it's such a quick narrative we drop into. I am a bad person, which it, which is the shame narrative. For sure. So hmm. much of our sense of self, self-worth um, is connected to. And yeah. that narrative of I am bad or I am unworthy or I am not good enough or all of the, the things that start surfacing. Oh, man, I've seen, I've seen so many just situations where shame has created this spiraling sensation that has created an immense amount of destruction in people's lives in terms of both therapeutically and personally and from my own perspective for myself. So it is one of those emotions that is just really, really painful. Yeah, absolutely. Do you, I mean, we're talking about this, we're talking about associations right now. <clears throat> And we're talking about shame, we're talking about guilt, we're talking about sense of self that all gets triggered. We start to also see, and I just want to use a trigger warning, but we do start to see an intensified um, sense of suicidal ideation with a lot of this. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah, shame um, and suicidality absolutely walk hand in hand. Like one of the, there. so there's questions when you're doing a suicide assessment, there's questions you ask um, and how a person answers some of those questions are indicative of how much risk they're in. And, and one of those questions that tells us this person's in a really high risk bucket is, do you believe or feel that the people in your life would be better off if you weren't here? And shame seduces us into that really painful narrative shame and and many other things depression and but yeah i i personally think that shame is one of the most damaging and destructive things that we experience um mm -hmm. so heaviness aside techniques and strategies to work through that shameful experience when it's coming over you because there are ways to to not let it engulf you and drown you in a way where, you know, it, it can be that devastating mm -hmm. and destructive too. Yeah. I mean, Brene Brown's really the queen when it comes to shame, right? Like, I, I love the idea that vulnerability is the anecdote or the cure to shame. And I think that's part of why when we have internalized RSD, we're so prone to some of 
the like negative coping because we're probably, we're less likely to reach out and be like, hey, I'm, I'm having this experience right now. We, we probably feel shame about the experience, right? Like shame about being too sensitive, shame about our shame. So reaching out becomes incredibly difficult. But if we can find someone, whether it's a therapist or a friend or a partner who who gets it and where we can give that shame some breathing room and by breathing room, not like room to expand, but like room to dissipate, right? Um, where it doesn't live inside so um, intensely. That is one of the most powerful things we can do to disrupt a shame spiral is yep. to connect. Which again, yep. like we're about relational shame, right? So like belonging has been threatened. It makes sense that connection would be the, the anecdote to that. And it also makes sense that it would be the last thing that you would reach for when you're yes. feeling like, oh, I'm I'm really feeling this massive amount of shame or, or rejection. Mm-hmm. I know I need connection, but I can't reach out for it because that makes me feel too vulnerable. That makes me feel unsafe. Mm-hmm. I don't feel worthy of connection. Whatever the internal dialogue is, um, it makes it that much harder a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I'm, I'm thinking about the matrix and I'll like find a way to um, make a one page infographic of this that I'm referring to and we can attach it because um, the other parts of the matrix are fight, flee. And I'm just thinking about how all of these reactions, all of these stress reactions to RSD move us away from what we need. They move us away from connection. So whether, you know, if we're fleeing, obviously that's going to move us away from connection in the, in the fight. That's where I would say projection comes online and where the shame is so intolerable to feel um, it gets projected onto other people. And then we lead with anger. That's a way of pushing people away. So whether it's like we're retreating in our pain internally, we're fleeing or we're projecting, all of these move us away from what we need, which is connection. And so I think that's that's a lot of work living and working with RSD is figuring out like, these, these are going to be my like automatic stress state responses. How do I override that to actually address a core need here and move toward that? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And if we can anchor into the idea that foundationally at the root of this is the desire to have the desire and necessity to have connection, yet the fearfulness or inability to feel like you can access it. Mm-hmm. And just constantly trying to anchor in and, and remember like connection is at the root of this, right? Like as humans, relational beings, regardless if we're introverted, extroverted, does not matter. We still need connection in some capacity. That's that's something that we we absolutely need. And it's a major um um com- mm-hmm. say. <laughs> it's it's majorly a part of our makeup and and when we don't have mm-hmm. access or we feel like it's not possible or we don't have those people in our lives who we can turn to, then this can this can really start to spiral out of control, I think. And this is where we see this really get to that negatively uh, impactful place and that really, really destructive place too. Mm-hmm. Not finding my words appropriately right now, but I just oh, want to emphasize the importance I, of connection. I feel like I was tracking. Um, I didn't notice that. I I feel like I could linger in this conversation. Um, it feels poignant and important. I'm also aware we talked about trying to 
get through questions in this episode. Um, yeah, we did should we move on to the next one? Or Let's do put we... a pin in that one question okay. because I think that the topic of shame in general could be an entire mm -hmm. series. Let's uh, do an episode on neurodivergent shame because shame is very much part of the experience. It's often tied to like, of course, past relational experiences we've had, um, internalized ableism. And then a lot of us have co-occurring trauma and trauma and shame are also very like trauma. Part of what's traumatizing about trauma is the shattering of self that often happens in trauma. So yeah, let's do a shame episode or episodes because that's cool. a big topic. Yeah. So for everyone listening, if shame is important, it feels like it's a part of your experience, which I assume for most of you it is, including ourselves, we will do more episodes on shame and specifically uh, focused on that topic. But we do have other questions that we want to get to if we want to, we want to make it an answer your questions episode. So one question was RSD linkage to PMDD. Mm -hmm. um, so you wanted to take that one. Yeah, I mean, I think we should do an episode on PMDD and just like neurodivergence and hormones at some point. Um, anyways, but um, PMDD is essentially, oh my gosh, what does it technically stand for? Postmenopausal dysphoric disorder. Good job. Yeah, I've I've been referring it to PMDD so long. I it was like, I'm not going to get those letters right. Thank you. Um, so it's kind of also dysphoric disorder. Um, it's well, it's, I mean, it's like PMS on steroids, essentially. Yeah, um, so basic, yeah, PMS on steroids, the, the clinical definition, PMS on steroids. Going into the DSM-6 soon, pre-menstrual dysphoric disorder. pre yeah. yeah, so it's, it's, and it's very connected to like how hormones are, are shifting as part of the cycle. Um, and both autistic and ADHD um, people who have a estrogen cycle, would that be the way to say it? That ha that ha experience a cycle, um, are much more vulnerable to, to both PMS and PMDD. And one of the things about PMDD, PMDD can be really intense. Like I've definitely seen cases where someone baseline mood is actually pretty okay, but will experience like acute suicidality in that like week or that period like it can be that intense it's not that intense for everyone but for some people it is that intense of a mood shift so absolutely like it's um it's almost i i describe it as like just paper thin like in the sense of like every everything's getting in in that period so emotions are going to be heightened so of course, RSD, if someone has a baseline RSD, that's that's also going to be heightened because RSD is connected to emotion regulation. So with PMDD, emotion regulation becomes a lot harder and we're just, we're, we tend to feel things more intensely. So um, I, yeah, I hadn't actually thought about that, but I love that, of that thought experiment of what RSD looks like in that window of time. And I think that's actually really helpful to know because even just be, it's not going to make it go away, but being able to say like, I know RSD triggers are going to be big this week. I'm probably going to perceive rejection where it's not. I'm going to feel it deeply. Doesn't mean it's true. Like being able to do that self-talk. Like I will, I don't know that I have PMDD, but I definitely have like hormonal shifts. I'll tell myself typically that week, don't trust your mind. 
you're not allowed to think about the future. You're not allowed to evaluate relationships. Like I have like hard rules about what my mind is allowed to do that week. Um, and it's, it's not like a harsh rule. It's like a kind, like parental figure coming in and being like, you know what? Your mind's not up to any good this week. So there's some things we're just not going to think about because it's not going to be helpful. Here's what we're going to do instead. Um, yeah. But yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, that's great. I mean, you could, man, you could make worksheets or like affirmations or guidelines for people in, around like that set of structuring in terms of, I'm not going to trust my mind this week. Like these are the things that you know to be true. Um, these are the things that we're not going to put any energy into. Like uh, mm -hmm. that makes so much sense. Okay. Add another episode to the list. Neurodivergence <laughs> <laughs> and hormones. So yep. moving on through the questions, these are leading to episodes, which we love. So thank you for submitting these. Okay. Uh, do stimulants cure RSD? That's a pretty... Uh, basic response to them. We're going to say no to that. There are stimulant medications, right? We talked, Megan talked about the uh, psychopharmacological um, perspective in episode one of things that do help in some capacities. But mm -hmm. if we're going to just make a blanket statement that say stimulants do not just cure or help RSD in that capacity. Okay. Uh, we did highly masked RSD. Uh, what else did we say we were going to talk about? I think um, autistic versus ADHD. And that was a question that right. came in. Um, so this, yeah. So you'll hear if you'll hear autistic people and ADHD people talk about RSD. Like there's a lot of resources out for, for both. And I actually didn't realize this till I started doing the deep dive about, so this question has come up, like is RSD specific to ADHD? Um, so first of all, I see a lot of like, monopolizing of experiences. Like I, I see a lot of autistic people being like, only autistic people have sensory sensitivities, which just isn't true. Um, so I just want to caveat that. Like anyone can be high on the rejection sensitivity spectrum, right? This is a spectrum of humanity. Um, RSD as a term, as a concept, as something we talk about is specific to the ADHD literature in the sense that it's come out of ADHD literature. It's, you know, the projections are like, I don't know how scientific this is, but according to Dr. Dotson, like 99% of ADHDers experience this, like it's a very core component of ADHD. Other people might be very high in the rejection sensitivity spectrum for different reasons, you know, attachment style, trauma, um, autistic, like being misperceived, internalized ableism. Um, is it RSD if a person's autistic and not ADHD? Um, I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know if we would apply that term. We, we could say they're, they might be really high in the rejection sensitivity. I, I have noticed when working with autistic only populations, it's not as, it, it's like hit or miss. Like maybe they have it, maybe they don't. Um, but I, I also see people where it's like, I don't really care what people think about me. Like that's some kind of a more, that's also present. Um, so I, autistic people do experience victimization and like social bullying and marginalization of their neurominority. So I think there's a lot of reasons why autistic people would also be high on rejection sensitivity. Um, and, and then we know a lot of autistic people are also ADHD. So I think I didn't provide clarity. I just explained how muddy the waters is. That's okay. Sometimes that is the answer though, how muddy the waters are because... And I'm also thinking as you're talking, right? Like we talk, we know so many people 
are undiagnosed, either autistic or ADHD, and how much gets missed. So I'm just wondering just how many people out there who identify as ADHD, who are also autistic but unknown or undiagnosed and vice versa, and how so much of that also plays a role into the prevalency of RSD um, showing up as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I will say, oh, this was after you left. You had to dip out for a meeting. When we interviewed Amanda for Ask an Autistic, I asked about this. And at first it was kind of like, yeah, maybe some RSD. But then we talked about like, okay, what happens when, and because we're both on social media, I asked explicitly about that. She's like, yeah, these narratives come on. And then, you know, I've, I've usually worked through it in like five or 10 minutes. And I was like, five or 10 minutes? Like I still get intrusive thoughts about experiences or even like, this is embarrassing to admit, like comments that I got two years ago, or like if I embarrass myself or did something I'm not proud of, I still get intrusive memories about that like 20 years later. Um, that's a pretty different experience than being able to move through something fairly quickly. And I know Amanda's just one autistic person, but that was a really interesting moment in our conversation when like, yes, painful, yes, hard, but the ability to have the tools to work through it without it like bouncing back. For me, I work through it, but it keeps bouncing back and then I have to work through it again. And that's part of that intrusive right? Um, kind of that's overtaking. Such a great point because that actually makes me remember um, what I was saying for my group practice. So shout out to Dr. Bennett Harris, who's going to rub that in my face that I named him on this podcast, but saying like these things linger for years sometimes, right? And that's something we haven't addressed yet is the length of time. I know you've addressed it in your, um, your workbook, but we haven't addressed on air that this can bounce back, like you just mentioned, for years. And it can be something where you can look at it when you're in a uh, a healthy, like cognitive space where you're like, yeah, okay, this comment, I've mm -hmm. worked through it. But then maybe something thematic or something similar comes into play and it hits you in a, or it impacts you in a way that you didn't expect. And all of a sudden you're right back to that comment from two and a half years ago. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, and I, yeah, I, I'm glad we're talking about that. Cause that's a part of RSD that like, a is just confusing and B is really stressful to just like be going throughout your day. And like all of a sudden intrusive, like, embarrassing or shame-filled memory pops up and you're like back in it like yeah it's okay this is kind of a silly example but we were actually we were filming an episode and we were talking about how we needed to do rsd and you were like speaking of rsd we just got our first like one-star review um and in the moment i was like i you know did my like talking through like okay that makes sense but then that comic kept popping in my head throughout the day and i still sometimes when i think about this podcast like that that just pops back up and it feels so silly. I'm, it, and then the secondary narrative of like, big Nana, why do you care about this? Right? So it's not just the intrusive memory. There's often a second narrative that comes on of like, why are you still holding on to this? Especially if it's something like that, where like, I feel like that's petty and I should, I should be able to just release it. Then there's the second narrative of like, why are you still thinking about this? Why can't you release it? Why can't you get over it? But let's talk about the secondary narrative. Because I think that's so important that you just name that. One, I'm sorry for bringing that up on air. Won't ever do that again. No, I'm glad you did. It's a good live example. And it's like, yeah. I hang on to that shit forever. I cannot tell you how often I check all things private practice and divergent conversations, Apple podcast reviews. Why am I doing this to myself? Like, why am I going on there knowing that there could eventually be a one-star review? Like, 
I should be able to let that go and then that will destroy me for days. I don't know why. That's self-inflicted, not healthy. Um, the secondary narrative, that process, right? Of, okay, this, this experience, this reaction is creating this sensation. It's creating RSD. It's creating uh, distress. Then the secondary narrative that's trying to rationalize said reaction, that is exhausting to bounce mm -hmm. back and forth between narrative mm -hmm. one and two over and over mm -hmm. and over and over and over again. Yes. And I've, one thing I've observed, because the neurodivergent brain is well so divergent, is that we often have like overlapping narratives of doing this with my hands of like, we'll have an experience and then we'll have a narrative about it. And then we'll have a narrative about the narrative. Um, and so one thing I've noticed, and I've started to be more careful with this. So I I don't do too much CBT. I, I do more of a mindfulness approach. So like, let's start noticing your thoughts. What I've noticed, and I think especially with neurodivergent people, for sometimes once they started noticing their thoughts, they got worse. And then we did it. So like I, there, there was an experience of this. And then, um, so we, the next week came back and like so much worse. So it was like, okay, let's unpack what's happening here. And it was the secondary narratives. It's, um, now that I'm observing my thoughts, I'm having so much judgments and evaluations and feelings about those thoughts. And so then you have to teach how to become mindful of the secondary narrative, right? Um, RSD about the RSD. Yeah, yeah. RSD about the RSD. Um, and, and, and invalidation, right? Like I think we're really good at invalidating ourselves in those narratives. Um, yeah, yeah. This, I'm going to try not to diverge too much because we said we were going to stay on course, which we should always know is never going to happen. Um, I'm thinking about like secondary narratives and how often I have to verbally process them out loud. Like I will talk myself through the secondary narratives a lot of the time and how uh -huh. often my wife looks at me in the house and she's like, who the fuck are you talking to? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, I am talking through like my my internalized experience and my thoughts that are happening right now and processing them out loud to try to pick them apart to decide what feels rational versus irrational and what feels like there's a linkage to. And she's like, is this happening in your brain all the time? And I was like, this is happening in my brain. Mm -hmm. all the yeah. Time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's weird to me that it's not happening for everyone inside the brain all the time. Like, like this isn't how this isn't taking up all this mental real estate. <laughs> 24 seven for you. People are like, mm -hmm. what? Mm -hmm. yeah. She looked at me like, how do you sleep? And I'm like, well, exactly. you know the answer to that. Not well. <laughs> mm. God. Yeah. We, we have busy minds. And so I think learning how to work with our minds, it becomes yeah. really important. Sometimes that is that mindfulness. Like for me, when I hear the word mindfulness, right. And now I'm really going to diverge is I hate that word. I do too. Um, I do too. Because I associate it with like meditation. Well, meditate. Don't Empty let, your mind. Exactly. Yeah, that's not going to happen. No. But I would much rather apply mindfulness in the way that you do, which I think you yeah. said was like I cannot remember the term. Oh, mindfulness on the go. And I searched it up after that, and it, there actually is a book that was written a long time ago with that same term. So I did not come up with the term. I mean, but I, I like what you yeah. mentioned though, right? Like you're being mindful about the temperature of your smoothie in the morning or your, mm, your mm -hmm. water or you're being mindful about the fact that your mind is diverging into a million different directions 
And <laughs> instead of like saying, oh my God, my mind is diverging into a million different directions. I need to shut it down. There's something wrong. I can't do it. Right. I'd rather say my mind is diverging into a million different directions. So yeah. I'm just being mindful of that. Yeah. Yeah, I like, so when I think about mindfulness, like I like the imagery of tagging. Like I feel like a lot of it, what I'm doing is tagging. Like, oh, that's what that is. That's what that is. Yep. Um, so it's like naming, tagging, and <laughs> yeah. What'd you say? List making. Um, list making. Uh, well, no, I think I would think of list making as more like you're in the content. And when I think about mindful tagging, it's a more of an observational process. Um, that's a really subtle distinction, but yeah. So, and that's part of it. So, um, I, I like the imagery of like observing mind, evaluative mind, and what mindfulness. Like it's it's not an activity; it's a way of being. It's a way of being with self. So whenever we're in observing mind, like that observer who's not judging, not evaluating, but like tagging, like you're having this experience, this is the script that's happening. Um, you're in observing mind and you can do that while being busy. Like you can do that. You don't have to sit and listen to a 10 minute meditation and try to empty your mind. For me, when I try to do those exercises, then all of the evaluation scripts, like I can't do this. This is so hard for me. My What's body physically feels uncomfortable. And that is that can even lend itself in. I'm going to get us back on track in a second, but that can even lend itself to being dismissed in the medical and mental health care system, mm -hmm. where medical professionals are like, "Have you tried mindfulness for sleep?" And you're like, "The fuck? Yes, of course I have tried mindfulness for sleep. I am neurodivergent. Do you understand how that means? How the brain works? Yes, I have tried it. Have I ever tried to like tag?" and be mindful of a million different thoughts simultaneously while looping them all together. Like that's every night of my experience. Of course mm -hmm. I tried that. Mm -hmm. <sighs> yeah. Anyway, I don't want to diverge that way. So <laughs> you wanted to also get to the topic of. Oh, yes. Yeah. Trauma slash. Yeah. So, so we got a couple questions about like, how do you tease out RSD from trauma, from attachment stuff? which is a yeah. great question. Um, so so first, I think whenever we get the like tease out questions, I, I want to first ask like for what cause or for what first purpose are we teasing this out? If it's like, I don't know what the diagnosis is, if you're a clinician, um, that's going to be a very different conversation than if it's like, this is a no neurodivergent person. So right. um, a lot of, I mean, it's, physiologically the same thing's happening right like the sympathetic nervous system or shutdown mode like it's being activated a stress state is being activated um we're responding to something relational like so teasing out like what are the triggers so in the context of trauma and well that also gets complicated are we talking about ptsd with a specific trauma are we talking about complex um trauma but like what are the triggers around it? Um, same thing with attachment, but honestly, I I have a hard time teasing out like what is anxious attachment and what is RSD because if criticism or feedback or someone being disappointed in you, that's going to be an attachment injury. So in attachment theory, we talk about attachment injuries and that's going to activate stuff. Um, so that's, yeah, again, muddy waters. Um, when it's the, a no neurodivergent person, 
who also has trauma, also has insecure attachment. At that point, it's like a soup, right? Like all of these things are intersecting. Um, and which means also like on one hand that could feel disempowering, but on the other hand, it means like as we heal from trauma, as we move toward more secure attachment, everything's going to get better, right? The whole system is going to get better. Um, okay. I feel like I've talked or rambled. No, when you say it's, you know, muddy waters and like a soup, I think that's, again, I know so many of you want clarity on this. And I think sometimes it's just not, there's not a Mm -hmm. lot of clarity to be given. Um, Because so many things intersect, like, and these are constructs, right? Like attachment theory, like these are constructs we've put on top of experiences. Right. So they're limited. Absolutely. I totally interrupted you. No, that's fine. We're, we're both having thoughts at the same time. So, um, but I, the one takeaway when we're talking about attachment trauma, if we're trying to like differentiate, if we're trying to, okay, if we want to put RSD over here versus what's anxious, versus what's avoidant versus what's complex PTSD gets really murky, but what is at the foundational level of all of these things? It's something we've talked about several times already in the last two hours, connection. Mm-hmm. Attachment trauma is about connection. Mm-hmm. RSD ultimately is about connection. Complex PTSD, there's going to be layers of unsafe or unhealthy connection. Mm-hmm. I think that so often we are we're missing this mark of like we want so badly to understand what's happening to us or our own experiences, right? Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, foundationally, at our core, it comes back to connection mm-hmm. and our desire to have it and our inability sometimes to receive it or or maintain it and i mm-hmm. think that that impacts everything that we're talking about i i love that of like get back to the basics now because and i i think especially with autistic people i can see this of like like wanting we, we want to know precisely what's happening right so like what's the rsd what's the trauma what's this um I don't know how helpful that conversation is, but I do know that what's helpful is getting down to the core need. Like, okay, this is a painful moment. What do I need in this moment? Um, what And getting back to that. Like, and, and yeah, typically a lot of these things are connection, belonging. These are the things that are being threatened and this is what I need right now. So getting back to the basics in those moments, I think is ultimately typically going to be more helpful than like, is this attachment? Is this it's like, it's all the things, right? It's all the things intersecting in a difficult moment. Exactly. And what, what usefulness does it serve if we're just throwing label on top of label on top of label? Mm-hmm. Because like, there's such a bad negative stereotype with avoidant attachment as there is. And then you throw, mm-hmm. you know, the, the label of autism or neurodivergence and people are going to have their own experiences around this and they're going to there's just i think if we just circle back to connectivity and just the ability to have relationships and what are we missing what are we feeling like we're really having painful experiences around the Mm -hmm. attachment label doesn't matter as much like it, it, it just gets so complicated and convoluted then we're trying to like parse apart you know things that are really deeply connected and and interwoven too. And it's really hard sometimes to get a sense of like, where does this go and where do I place this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think partly like we have to get into how is the label being used? You know, I, I take a very constructivistic approach to language in general. Um, 
like I prefer language that is the most helpful. So for some person, like talking about like, oh, my attachment system is activated right now. If that's the most helpful for you attuning to yourself and validating your experience, use that language, right? If it's more helpful to be like, oh, my RSD is activated right now, use that language, use that frame. Um, but how these labels are being used, I realize, like for myself, I often use these la labels in that mindful tagging way that we were just talking about, of like, oh, this is what's happening for me right now. But I'm very aware that those labels could be used in a, and have a very different experience for someone, right? It could be like a shame base, like this thing is activated right now and I'm so like mad about it and mad at myself. And so I think probably, or it could be used as a distancing, right? Distancing from the core wound, distancing from the core need by saying, oh, that's RSD. And then like just leaving it at that, it could be a way to emotionally distance from the pain. So as much as the label is important, I think more so like, how is that label being used? What's the internal experience of it? Just lost your sound for a second. Oh. You're back. Okay. Back. I heard, how is this label being used? How is this label being experienced? Is that it? Yes. And then I was done. So maybe you didn't lose sound. Maybe I just feel like I ended in fit sentence. <laughs> maybe that was it. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree. 100%. And I think if we can kind of incorporate some of those techniques and strategies and, and just ways of thinking about this, it could be a little bit less painful. And mm -hmm. it's given me a lot of ideas right now, which is not where I want my brain to be going into <laughs> diverging into all these ideas because I've got to get into other meetings. Um, but I have so many ideas for episodes based off of these last couple of conversations. And again, I just want to highlight how helpful these ask the audience sessions can be because one we want your feedback those of you who are listening we appreciate all of you the feedback has been very helpful constructive positive and we do not take it for granted and we want to answer these questions because we know a lot of this experience is feeling confused feeling overwhelmed feeling othered feeling disconnected feeling alone and we want to help maybe make this a little bit more of a human experience for all, all of you involved. Megan's just not. So, I'm just, I'm, I'm feeling that was, I'm feeling like that was the conclusion. Um, episodes are out every Friday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Episodes are out every Friday on all major platforms it's, on YouTube. Um, it's goodbye. like a compulsion now, Patrick. I like have to make it awkward at the end. I mean, you're doing a good job of it. I'm honestly not trying. It's just like, okay, that was the summary. You look at me. I don't know what to add. I feel like if I add anything, I'll have ruined your summary. Your, be your beautiful summary. My voice is now going out. <clears throat> just that. Goodbyes are rough. All right. Goodbyes are rough. Goodbye. And now, pause for a word from our sponsors. From new patients faced with an empty lobby and no idea where to find their therapist, to clinicians with a session running overtime and the doorbell ringing, some of the most anxiety-ridden moments of a therapy appointment happen before a session even starts. This episode's sponsor, The Receptionist for iPad, helps you tackle some of that pre-appointment apprehension and anxiety. 
The receptionist for iPad is an easy-to-use digital client check-in system that helps your visitors check in securely to their appointments and notify their practitioners of their arrival via SMS, email, or your preferred channel. No more confusion, endless lobby checking, or having clients sign in on paper logbooks. It can even help you upgrade and update your demographic information for your clients as well and even validate parking. Start a 14-day free trial of The Receptionist for iPad by going to thereceptionist.com slash private practice. Make sure to start your trial with that link and you'll also get your first month free if you decide to sign up.